So at first service, I mentioned this, and I'll mention it again. Um, We have a beautiful sister in Christ named Wanda, and she's been through her own health challenges lately with a knee replacement and uh, what follows that, which is a lot of pain and rehab. So we got a prayer request that her little granddaughter was hit by a car, uh, eight years old, and she is, I believe, in intensive care, but she's responding a little bit. Um, so her name is, Ni- I think it's pronounced Nilea. So we're going to pray for her. And then some of you uh, who are on the prayer chain, prayer requests come almost every day. And I apologize to you if you have an urgent need that I'm not going to address up here. But the second thing I wanted to pray over was Greg Hernandez broke his hip, um, fell, broke his hip, and he had emergency surgery. And he's doing okay, last we heard. But it's going to be a long recovery for him. And little Ruthie is standing by his side in the family. So just want to pray over both those needs. Would you join me? Father, for Nilea and her family, uh, for Wanda and parents and everyone who uh, is connected to this little girl. We pray for your mercy over her. We pray that you would heal her body completely, Lord. Uh, we, we pray you'd extend a hand of mercy and touch her. Would you bring comfort to her parents, grandparents, and all those who love her? And we just pray that you would do a mighty miracle in her life, Lord, and just restore her. Uh, see the family through this and draw them each close to you. We lift up Greg to you right now. Thank you that he got through the surgery okay. We just pray over him that his body would heal and that uh, you'll be with Ruthie and uh, the rest of the family as well and all those who are connected to them, part of this body and beyond that, Lord. So thank you, thank you for your mercy. Thank you that we can come to a throne of grace and find mercy to help in time of need. There are many other prayer requests in this room which you know every heart and you know the need. We take a moment just to acknowledge that you know our needs, Lord, and but we know you honor prayer. So any unspoken prayer requests, um, would you mercifully minister to each need? Ultimately, we pray that your will will be done. You know best, but we also pray for your mercy in situations that need your attention. Thank you that you are so gracious to do just that. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. All right, we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew 13, Matthew chapter 13, and once you have it, if you're able to stand, why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're going to finish Matthew 13, the king dishonored in his hometown is the title. We're picking it up in Matthew, at Matthew 13, 53, and it reads this way. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there, Matthew 13, 54. He came to his hometown and began teaching them, all, teaching them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. You can have a seat. 
Lord, as we finish chapter 13 of this majestic gospel of the kingdom, we see you go home and get rejected by your own hometown, and you even say those of your household. And knowing that you are the God-man, fully God and fully man, I'm sure that it broke your heart. And Lord, we want to say, as we said in the morning prayer meeting before these services even commenced, you are welcome here. Apart from you, we can do nothing. In the, in the text, it says, you went into their synagogue. May we never say this is our church. It is your church. And you said to a church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. It is possible for you to even be outside the church. Oh, God. We think of mainline denominations that are, are now denying essential truth. We, we think of seminaries once grounded in biblical truth and training pastors now bankrupt. Our nation needs a revival back to Jesus, back to the Christ of the scriptures. Oh, Lord, as we consider these things, it's easy to look at things that may be amiss in our culture, but let us ask in our own hearts, are you welcome in our hearts? And in this church, do we live that way? Would you help us, Lord, to have an open heart and open ears and a heart that wants to respond in a way that pleases you? I pray all of this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. Amen. The king dishonored in his hometown, Matthew 13. We pick it up in verse 53. And it came about, if you have a new King James, it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, that was the eight kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. We studied those together. But let me just highlight a few as we closed the eight. We saw the treasure hidden in the field in verse 44. We saw the one pearl of great price or great value in verses 45 and 46. And then in verse 52, we saw what we're supposed to do with the treasure. We share, we give it out, things new and old. And we're still talking about value. And I mentioned to you that honor and value are very much similar in the ancient world. You would determine uh, value by weight. And the word honor has that idea of weightiness. And now Jesus, having talked about what we value, what we treasure, is now going to go to his own hometown. He's going to go to the place called Nazareth. He's going to leave the, the lakeside, if you will, the Sea of Galilee. You remember that when he preached many of these parables, he was in a boat. And he kind of used the water as a way to amplify his voice. And then sometimes he's in the house doing private explanations uh, to the apostles. But Jesus now leaves the lake where he's done the bulk of his ministry and he returns home. Scholars uh, wonder whether this is the first or second visit to Nazareth where Jesus was raised. And just to remind you, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. He was called Jesus of Nazareth. He was known as a Nazarene. And this was not a very popular place, but it was up in the Galilee region, and it's where Jesus grew up. And it would kind of be uh, 
almost a despised village, a very much an unknown place or not very popular compared to Jerusalem and other places. And so uh, whether this was his first or second visit gets a little bit of debate. And the reason is, is because Luke 4 has an account of Jesus in his own hometown. And Luke has it at the very beginning of his ministry in Galilee. And we wonder, well, which is it? Is, is, is it his second visit or first visit? Let me just say to you that I think it's his first and only visit, although two visits, it, it wouldn't really matter. It would just show that he's very gracious. And if it is his second visit, it means they've learned nothing. Because both times, if it's his second visit, he's going to be rejected. But I think it's his first visit. Let me just share something from R.T. France because I think he clarifies. He says, this is Jesus' only return to Nazareth after his public ministry began down by the lake. Luke 4, 16 through 30 tells the story at length and in a more dramatic form. Let me park on that point just to say that the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though, have, though having similar content, do what we almost hear detectives say when they uh, will interview witnesses like at an accident. Let's say that cars crashed at an intersection. They will interview multiple witnesses and they'll get variations of the story from the perspective of that witness. That usually lends credibility or veracity to the eyewitness testimony. If everybody was like a cookie cutter and said the same exact details in the same exact order, you might become a little bit concerned. So the gospel authors sometimes do abridged versions of accounts led by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes others will draw further details. This is not contradictory, it is complementary. And that's a good way to see it. So this is what uh, France goes on to say. He says, uh, this story then culminates on an, in an attempt on Jesus' life. They try to kill him. Luke has moved it out of its natural place in the narrative in order to use it as a frontispiece. He means an illustration for his account of the Galilean ministry. In other words, France is saying this kind of sets the tone and Luke put it in a thematic rather than chronological place because it sets the tone for the rest of Jesus' ministry. But in Matthew and Mark, it fits more naturally with reports already having reached Nazareth of the wisdom and miracles which Jesus had been displaying down by the lake area and beyond. And so Jesus now comes to his hometown. He's done a lot. He's touched a lot of people. He's preached a lot. Word about his fame has spread everywhere, even beyond the borders of Israel, and certainly it has spread to his own hometown. This is something interesting to think about. Earlier, when we were together, we studied Jesus' family coming uh, to a place where he was teaching. This is Matthew 12, 46 through 50. They stand outside, and a witness comes in uh, and says, your mom and your brothers are outside. Remember that? Whenever mama's outside, it makes you a little bit nervous. Like, your mom wants to talk to you right now. No, it didn't make Jesus nervous, right? But Jesus said famously, who is my mother and who are my brothers? The one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. And Mark tells us that his brothers were not believing in him at this point. Now later, the brothers mentioned in this text 
two of them. James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church and seems to believe after the resurrection. And Jude writes his own letter before the book of Revelation. We know that they're believers. But at this point in Jesus's ministry or around this time, they actually were trying to talk him down. In fact, the Bible says that they thought that he had lost his senses. They were trying to do an intervention And whether it was to protect him from harm or whatever the motivation, Jesus distances himself from his family. Now, that family likely returned to that village. How many times do you think people in the village said, hey, we've been hearing things about your son or your brother. What do you think? Do you think that the family's unbelief permeated the village of Nazareth? And let me just say on a practical level, when we walk in unbelief, it affects other people. When we walk by faith, faith has a way, people filled with faith have a way of impacting others positively. When we walk in unbelief and in a lack of faith, we we influence other people negatively. And let's just admit it that our family plays a key role in this. Now, if you were raised in an unbelieving household, You know, maybe you were the first Christian in your family. And the immediate mission field that comes before us after we get saved is our immediate family. And so we go to them, and we often, you know, we don't have all of our evangelistic skills refined, so we come in with a family Bible, hit a couple people over the head, you know, repent! We stand on the kitchen table, you know. But the point is this, that oftentimes our families are skeptical of us. And you probably noticed in the reading of the text that the people in Nazareth say, where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get these miraculous powers? They've been hearing about his miracles, and he did a few miracles there. We'll talk about that in a second. But they, they also hear his wisdom, and they know he grew up in a carpenter shop. They know his daddy was a carpenter. And in Mark 6, 3, if you're taking notes, Jesus is called the carpenter. He didn't spend his life under a rabbi. He wasn't anywhere near the rabbinic schools in Jerusalem. How did he get this incredible wisdom? How does he know, as John says, his letters, his theology? Where did he get this wisdom? And and Jesus' life raises questions like that. Here's another thing to think about. This means that since Jesus grew up in Nazareth, all the apocryphal stories in apocryphal literature, non-Bible books that will tell stories of Jesus doing miracles as a baby or an adolescent are not true. The people in Nazareth are shocked that he is someone great like this. And indeed, he's going to claim that he's the Messiah, which means that Jesus wasn't doing miracles as a baby or a 12-year-old or a teenager. His public ministry catapulted that work, and that was at the Jordan River when John baptized him and the Spirit came upon him. And then he went out to be tempted, and then he started his ministry. So that's just some side notes, but that is what's happening here. Jesus, look at 54, came to his hometown. And uh, Nazareth has been mentioned earlier in the gospel, so it's implied here. And he began teaching in their synagogue. I don't know how much to make of their synagogue, but I know how we Christians can sometimes become about our churches. 
We, sometimes we take ownership of our church and the way we've always done things. And we got to be careful. It's not our church. The church belongs to Jesus. He's the head of the church. Some years ago, we had a sweet little girl, part of our congregation at our old location. And she came up to me one day and she said, Pastor Michael, are you the king of this church? And I paused briefly and said, yes, I am, sweetheart. Yes, I am. (laughs) No, I didn't say that. Don't get nervous. I said, no, Jesus is the king of this church. Oh, okay, Pastor Michael. And she walked off. Anyway, I thought maybe a cookie was coming my way or something. Anyway, so we got to be careful that we don't claim that this is our church. This is his church. I'm going to be here for a window of time and I'm moving on. And should the Lord tarry, whoever is next will take that baton. And we've got multiple people that do the preaching here, as you know. But the point is this, let's be careful that we know it's his church. And they were astonished. Notice they became astonished. They were shocked. And they said, where does this man Notice emphasis on this man. Get this wisdom and these miraculous powers. Now, when Jesus came to his own hometown, this should have been the biggest parade of multiple millennia. Amen? When he came to his own hometown, they should have had a ticker tape parade. Everybody should have been opening their doors to serve him a Thanksgiving meal and bring the broken, the hurting, the, the ones that you know, had no hope. They should have brought them to his feet. He should have been celebrated like no other hometown boy makes good. Amen? If ever that were true, were true of him. But they were cynical and skeptical of him. And they say, this man. Jeremy Camp said, in only a moment, truth was seen, revealed this mystery. The crown that showed no dignity he wore, and the king was placed for all the world to show disgrace. But only beauty flowed from this place. Would you take the place of this man? Would you take the nails from his hands? You see, some people, when they look at Jesus in the synagogue and the the skepticism of his own hometown, they're like, they wonder at it, but it, it magnifies something else. This man is the mediator. It emphasizes his, his manhood. He is God, 100% God, and 100% man. And in that village where he grew up, he was one of them. There was nothing necessarily outstanding about him as he became one of us and took the form of a servant and died on a cross. He's called the carpenter and a tree that he designed, he died on. Would you take the place of this man? You know, that song is a great song, but actually it's Jesus taking our place. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He's the God man. And so he comes into the synagogue and you would think that this would be the celebration of centuries and millennia, but it's not. He teaches, and they're shocked. And they say, where did he get this wisdom? It's a source question. This is Isaiah 40, 13 through 15. It reads this way. 
Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. You see, this one who became man is also our creator. And when you think about the millions of species that exist, when you think about the stars and the oceans and sea life and reproduction and the beauty and majesty of the eye and the heart, and we start talking about his creative abilities, that the fact that he would come down and preach in any synagogue at all is a wonder. The fact that he, amen, that he would condescend and become one of us is the wonder of all wonders. That's why when the songs play in the next month at the mall, I pray that people's ears would be open to who this is. Who is this man? You see, Jesus' life does raise those kinds of questions, and it should. It should make us ask some questions. Jesus says later, who do you say that I am? Well, people are saying you're this and that, but who do you say I am? It would seem that Jesus is saying that is going to determine something very important about your whole life and your destiny. And so they said, is this not the carpenter's son, 55? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas or Jude? And his sisters, notice more than one sister, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? They're saying, we know this guy. We know his family. Look, his his dad is named. He's the carpenter's son. We're not sure if Joseph is still alive or not. His mother is named. His brothers are named. And I mentioned to you in a previous sermon that this debunks the perpetual virginity of Mary. The Roman Catholic Church, with all due respect to our Roman Catholic friends, have taught this as a doctrine, and it's just not true. Jesus had a big family. Now, Jesus was virgin-born. He was born of a virgin. He was the firstborn, if you will, but he was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. But after Jesus was born into the world, Mary and Joseph had a big family, and Jesus had a lot of siblings. And It does make you wonder what the dynamics were like when he was growing up, amen? (laughs) Family of, you know, perhaps eight kids and the parents and so forth. But what we do know is that Joseph was a carpenter and Jesus grew up and he took on the, uh, that skill. And he was probably known as the village carpenter, especially if Joseph died earlier, Jesus may have been that guy. And what's interesting about that word carpenter in the Greek language, it it opens up to the idea of a constructor or like a general contractor. It's not just woodworking. It could have to do with agricultural implements. It could have to do with stone masonry work. And I would imagine that Jesus was quite the carpenter. Amen. I mean, after all, he designed the universe and everything in it. I think he could make some cool stuff. He was a constructor. Oh, does that hit the nail on the head? Look at creation. Brothers and sisters, creation cries out. 
to his nature. His invisible attributes are clearly seen by what has been made. Amen? Amen? So that man is without excuse just by the physical creation alone. We can see who God is. He's left his fingerprints everywhere. And the best that the scientific community has to refute that is what? A big bang. Because big bangs usually cause a lot of order. Right? <laughs> but that's the best they got. They, they want you to believe, you need to hear this, that there's no intelligence, no mind behind this. And then now what's now being offered up is perhaps aliens shot the first life down here. Because modern scientists, being honest, cannot deny the design of the cosmos. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the creator. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Revelation 1, all celebrate that without Jesus, not one thing would be made that was made. In him was life, and that life is the light of men. When you sing about Emmanuel, you, you and I cannot forget who we're talking about. God became one of us. He's in a synagogue. He's preaching. You would think that this would be the most exciting sermon one would ever want to hear. The king of the universe. Open your Bibles to Isaiah 61. Okay, Lord, whatever you say. We, we sit here for hours. Teach us. Show us the depths of your word. But what do they do? Isn't that the carpenter's son? We know his mom. We know his dad. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. They say familiarity breeds contempt. And indeed, that's true. Julian the Apostate, this is quoted by C.H. Spurgeon. As he is called, this would be a guy who left his faith, so-called. He, he once asked a Christian, what do you think the carpenter's son is doing right now? Answer that one, Christian. The Christian replied promptly, he's probably making coffins for you and all his enemies. <laughs> and all God's people said, yeah! I think some humor filled with biting truth is very appropriate at times, don't you think? But the carpenter would die for his enemies as well on the tree. And so there's some doubt, some contempt. Now, in Luke's uh, version, if you go there, or Luke's account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, just turn over to Luke chapter 4. Luke gives us more detail, and it's a pretty, pretty dramatic situation. But we can already tell that Jesus knows they're not going to welcome him because he knew what was in every heart. He knew every man, John 2, 24, 25. So notice what happens. This is Luke 4.16. Jesus came to Nazareth. We had been brought up. Luke 4.16. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he went and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the good news of the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, 
and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Most scholars see verse 19 as the year of jubilee. You might have a note in your Bible, Leviticus 25.10, and that was uh, once every 50 years when they would forgive all debts, all land would return to original owners, and that's the appeal made here to the favorable year of the Lord or the year of jubilee. The gospel is jubilee for us. We've been forgiven of our debts. Uh, The years that the locust has eaten has been restored to us, etc. That's the idea. It's the favorable year of the Lord. Now, if you hold your place in Luke, I want you to turn over to Isaiah 61, and we'll we'll put it up on the screen if you're newer to navigating your Bible. But in Isaiah 61, this is the actual direct quotation. And this is so beautiful. I just want you to see the first three verses because I want all of us to muse in the beauty of what they say. Isaiah 61.1, here's what Jesus would have read. And this would have been written 700 years before he was in that synagogue at Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, 61.1, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. That part is not in the quote in Luke. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the year of jubilee, if you will, or the favorable year of the Lord. And the day of vengeance of our God. Now, Jesus stopped at the beginning of verse 2. The day of vengeance of our God could be his wrath on sin, or it may point to the future day of the Lord. But notice how the flow goes. To comfort all who mourn. What makes us mourn? Sin and its effects. To grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. How many of us could say, if you turn back to Luke 4, that we live, in, we live in this world and inevitably we end up brokenhearted. Now some might say the broken heart that he came to heal is, is our heart that is deceitfully wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. That may be it, but I think it's probably in the flow of these verses talking about the brokenheartedness of this world, this life, what sin does, what war does, what man's pride does what loss and sorrow and grief do to us. And earlier, Isaiah said, but he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, amen? And that was, that's pictured in our sin, that he took on our sin, and it's um, the punishment, even though he was completely innocent. He bore the weight of it at the cross. And here's Jesus in the synagogue, and he, he quotes a very familiar passage, probably everybody knew it. And he closed the book, Luke 4.20, or closed up the scroll, gave it to the attendant, probably the synagogue leader, sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Now he sat in the position of a teacher, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture, we might say this Bible verse, has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? Now, you can see, it started off great. He's popular. Uh, People are saying, oh, gracious words. What a preacher. What wisdom. Isn't he Joseph's son? Man, he's an amazing speaker. So wise. And then Jesus says this. He said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. 
whatever we heard was done at Capernaum down by the lake, do here in your own hometown as well. We want to see miracles. Do a bunch of them here as well. We, we've heard that you're a miracle worker. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in, in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Now quickly, this story is told in 1 Kings 17, and Elijah's told to, uh, to flee to Sidon, to Zarephath, and he'll be taken care of. And he finds this widow, and he says to the widow, give me a drink. And she gives him a drink of water, and he says, I want, I want something to eat. I'm paraphrasing. And she says, oh, I only have a little bit of flour left for me and my son. We're going to make this bread cake, and then we're going to die, because we're going to die of starvation. There's a famine in the land. We got nothing. And he goes, make me a bread cake first. Make me a maple bar first. Loose translation. And the Lord will multiply the barrel with the flour in it. So she obeyed, even though, I mean, this, this, to believe this meant our last meal I'm giving to some other guy. But he's a prophet of God. And she, she makes the bread cake, gives it to him. And then every morning when they wake up, there's flour inside the barrel. And Jay Vernon McGee said they probably woke up every day, looked inside the flour barrel and sang the doxology. Praise the Lord. More flour. That's the good. We'll make a pizza pie. Whatever that. I don't know what they said, but flour is a wonderful creation. What did it take for the widow of Zarephath, listen, outside of Israel to believe? Well, she obeyed the word of the prophet. Do you know what was happening in Israel under Elijah's ministry? Elijah went to King Ahab and said, it ain't gonna rain for three and a half years in this place until I say it's gonna rain by God's authority. And do you know why that curse lay on the land? One word, unbelief. They would not obey God. And so famine came on the land they had a wicked leader, and his influence had permeated the landscape. Idolatry was everywhere. And Elijah the prophet went outside of Israel, and someone believed, and there was a miracle. Now keep that in mind, and look at the second account that Jesus appeals to. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet. This is in 2 Kings 5, if you're curious. None of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. He was the Syrian commander. You remember the story? He goes to Elisha's house, and uh, he's been told by a little girl that serves in his household that the, the miracle can happen. And he goes, and he shows up with all the, the money and the fortune and the treasure, and the prophet doesn't even come outside. He says, just go dip in the Jordan seven times, you'll be healed. And he was enraged. What are you talking about? He won't even come, come out and take my business card. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right? But... He gets challenged by some of the soldiers, and they said, well, if he asked you to do some great thing, would you do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, just dip in the Jordan seven times, see what happens. One, two, three, four. <laughs> yeah, comes up the fifth time out of the water. Seventh time, remember what happened? His leprous skin became like a baby skin, and he was healed. He obeyed. Even in the face of doubt, there's cleaner rivers in our homeland. Why this river? He just did it. He believed, and he was healed. 
you see what Jesus is starting to say, brethren? I'm coming to my hometown, and you're not going to believe. And it'll be just like the days of Elijah and Elisha, where there was unbelief that permeated the land, and now the Messiah's come. What will happen? Well, the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. Now, I've had some bad days at the pulpit. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. Never in my preaching career did I have people amening and applauding and then try to throw me off the brow of a hill. Now, I've had some people snarl at me, <laughs> growl, you know, make faces, but never like this. Can you believe the Son of God? God the Son gets this kind of response. Notice what happens. The people were filled with rage when they heard these things because they knew what it meant. And they got up and they drove him out of the city. They led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. They tried to kill him in his own hometown. They tried to murder him. And Jesus wasn't going to die this way at this time, so it says, but passing through their midst, he went his way. I don't know what happened there, because they were in a frenzy, and they led him to the brow of the hill. I don't know, since he's the constructor, the creator, if he froze everybody, and they just moved on. Don't know. But we'll turn back to Matthew 13. And I think you can feel the weight of the next words. They took offense at him, Matthew 13, 57. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Says, in the New Living Translation, they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Boy, people are pretty deeply offended these days as well, right? Seems, seems more easily offended. Even we have comedians now saying they, they can't even tell certain jokes in certain places because people are wound so tight, so much on the edge. But there's nothing new under the sun, they were deeply offended at Jesus. But why were they offended? Why this response? Please hear me. Because Jesus hit the nail on the head. The biggest singular problem in Israel in this day and in his home, own hometown was unbelief. Do you know that in Hebrews chapter 3, this is around 18 and 19 of that chapter, it says that the, the Exodus generation did not enter into God's rest because of unbelief. In fact, this is such a huge issue, I will say to you. However you come at it theologically, that unbelief is the one thing that will keep you from the kingdom of God. If you won't believe in Jesus, then you won't be saved. That's the bottom line. So here is Jesus. What is he looking for in the people? Faith. But they can't seem to overcome their familiarity with him and whatever the other issues are that they have, just like 
seemingly the rest of the people that he reaches out to. And he gets no honor. He gets, in fact, the polar opposite of honor. Oh, Nazareth, why would you let your pride allow you to respond in this way? Oh, Nazareth, instead of embracing your king, you resent him, you rid yourselves of him, or so you think. And you put yourself in the class of Bethsaida and Capernaum and other places where he did many, many miracles and they would not repent. And I don't know what that walk was like with Jesus away from Nazareth, but since we know he wept over Jerusalem, I wouldn't be surprised if he shed a tear or two for his own hometown. And then this staggering verse which concludes the section. And Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now we're going to end with a scripture in Mark. So you're going to go Matthew then Mark chapter 6. I want you to see Mark also tells this story in a very succinct way. But he hits on something that's important to see. And as you turn there I just want to ask a couple of questions. Do you think as we look at America, as we look at our families, as we look at our world, what do you think the impact of unbelief has been? If you personalize this right now and you ask the question, okay, where am I at? Does my faith encourage others and you might be asking questions like, well, how does one build their faith? You've got to be in the things of God. You've got to draw near to God. You've got to read his word and worship and, and all those things. I think things that we're very used to hearing. But here's what it says. And he could do, Mark 6, 5, no miracle there except that he laid hands upon a few sick people, which for us would be miraculous, right, if that happened in our congregation. And he healed them. But he could do no miracle except a few things and he wondered at their unbelief and he was going around the villages teaching. Spurgeon says, unbelief bound his hands. Why should he spend sacred energy among people who would not be profited thereby? Here's what I think is going on. I think Jesus knew that if he healed a bunch of people, they, weren't, they still were not going to believe in him. And so he didn't do it because he put his finger on the real issue. And had they repented, I think there would have been a huge celebration in Nazareth. But it didn't happen. This is how Gusick puts it. As long as God chooses to work in concert, I would add, at least to some degree with human agency, developing our ability to partner with him, our unbelief, can hinder the work of God. We learn in Hebrews, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So what do we do? We've got to pray that the Lord would increase our faith. Amen? We know he honors faith. And we know that faith is built in a life that's constantly drawing close to the object of faith. And when you don't, you just won't have it, or it will ebb. Here we are 
in one of the greatest blessed countries probably in world history. And we've become so familiar with Jesus, the church, the teaching of God's word, that I wonder, where are we? Oh, that we would believe, that we would have a revival in America. We've been praying for that, right? We look at our friends, we look at people inside and outside the church, and we wonder, where's the faith? We're such a blessed people. Look, I ate two Thanksgiving dinners with great glee, and then the next day, leftovers. And we did repeat multiple times, we're blessed, we're blessed, we're blessed. But if all we can do is mouth a quick prayer to eat a second helping of turkey, there's something wrong with us. Would to God that we might squeeze a scripture in there about gratitude. Amen? And say, oh Lord, We've been given such an incredible gift to live in America at this time. The post-World War II generation in America has probably been the singularly most blessed people who have ever lived in world history. You know that? And it can quickly go away if we keep not welcoming the founder of the whole world. His name is Jesus. Oh God, help us in Corona and Norco and Riverside and wherever else, let's let him in. We've, we've proven what we can do with the place. Amen? I know it's hard to say amen to heart truth, but there you go. Oh, Father, we do not want to be those who wallow in unbelief. We don't want to walk by sight instead of by faith. Faith challenges us to the core. We, we collectively admit it's hard. We live in a very material world. Things fly at us, chisel away at our faith. We have all these people deconstructing and buying into the lie that you can define your own way of doing religion when, Lord, you've defined it. Forgive us. Forgive me. Lord, we, we need a revival. We need a great awakening in America. And you've been so gracious to do it over our fairly short history. We look at Israel. We look at what's going on in all the, the layers in this world, Lord. This, this world is a broken place, but you are the great healer. You heal broken hearts. You comfort the afflicted. You set prisoners free. And this room is filled with people that you've touched with the good news of the gospel. And we get to carry that banner as a church. We preach good news of great joy, which is for everybody. Today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Oh, thank you for your patience with us, oh Lord. I pray in the next 30 days or so as we lead up to Christmas Day, our faith would be stronger than it's ever been because we draw close to the object of our faith. We'd see you doing more miracles. We realize there's a whole false word faith movement that always places so much emphasis on this stuff. And Lord, we know that that's false. But we know you still honor faith, especially faith that's in keeping with your will. Help us 
Lord, we, we can resonate with that dad in Mark 9. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Would you keep your heart bowed just for a moment? Where would you say you are with Jesus right now? Are you a believer? Do you know him? Have you made him your king, your God, your Lord? You know, he is really a prayer away, but he does want your allegiance. He doesn't just want a prayer to secure your place in heaven. He wants your allegiance. He wants your heart, all of you. That's the best thing you can give is all of you. So if, you, if that's you, you might just tell him, Lord, I want you to be my king. Please save me, forgive me, restore me. I believe in who you are and what you did for me through the, the cross and the resurrection. I repent of my sin and I place my trust in you. Teach me how to follow you. Maybe you're a prodigal and you've been wallowing in some unbelief lately and maybe you could easily trace back where that came from and be a, a great time to repent of that and just get right with the Lord and just draw close to him. He'll bless you like you can't imagine. And Lord, for this precious congregation, would you keep them strong in the Lord and in the strength of your might? Increase their faith as we approach Christmas and beyond and Lord, help us to impact uh, these surrounding areas with the good news and the hope of the gospel. In Christ's name I pray.